A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by Naftali and Adele Katzenstein. In honor of the Geberer family. That's beautiful, uh, very sweet, thank you. And today's episode will explore one of the interesting characters, and more so the world of this interesting character of the 19th century, Rav Eliyahu Guttmacher. Rav Eliyahu Guttmacher was a German rabbi and mystic. He was a Kabbalist as well. And he was an early proto-Zionist, a supporter of of Reb Tzvihir's Kalischer, um, again, Zionist as in proto-Zionist. I discussed this uh, several times. It's before um, the Zionist movement, before the, even the Chibas Tzion, uh Lovers of Zion movement. This is the mid-1800s. We'll get to that aspect of his biography as well later on. But what makes um, Rebelio Guttmacher so such a fascinating story is that he emerged as a sort of miracle worker in his later years, and I'm going to explain exactly what I mean by that, as we trace his story and see how it developed. What I'd like to mention at the outset is that this this uh, incredible collection uh, of kvitlach that we have of his, uh, despite his not being a Hasidic Rebbe of any sort, he received petitions from all over, primarily from Eastern Europe, but from other places as well, and his being a non-Hasidic Rebbe is probably the cause of, of the fact that almost all of them are of material requests in nature, and very few about spiritual ones, the service of God, or Hasidic thought, or anything else. It's primarily material requests. And this incredible collection of nearly 7,000 kvitlich was discovered in 1932. It eventually wound up in Yivo in Vilna, and it was saved during the war, and the collection exists today in both YIVO in Manhattan and the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. So the importance of this collection is that it's there's nothing like this that exists anywhere in the world. There's no other collection of kvitlach that were submitted to a tzaddik anywhere of such a size and scope that there is in this nearly 7,000 uh, kvitlach. No one has really, no one for many years, no one really sat down and read them on their own merit, until recently researchers have begun to utilize this resource, two of whom 
um, that that I'm acquainted with who, who've done the research on them, and I'm sure there are more out there, is Professor Marcin Wojcinski uh, uh, in Poland, in Wrocław, and Professor Glenn Diner, American. Um, uh, Professor Marcin Wojcinski in his historical atlas of Hasidism uh, discusses a little bit. I heard uh, a lecture, of, I was privileged to hear a lecture from him about the topic, so a lot of what I'm going to use is notes that I took uh, today, what is, is notes that I took during this lecture from Professor Wojcinski. And uh, Glenn Diner has a recent book that he uh, published, Yankel's Tavern, Jews, Liquor, and Life in the Kingdom of Poland, again, which he used the Rav Gutmacher Kvitlach uh, collection to be able, an analysis of it, to be able to come draw some fascinating conclusions about the social life of Polish Jews in the 19th uh, uh, century. So between that and quite a bit of other research that's been done recently, we have a real interesting story through these kvitlach that were sent to Rav Gutmacher. These kvitlach tell the story of Eastern European Jewry that almost no other resource can share. Intimate details of family life, economics, relationships with non-Jewish surrounding, surroundings, taxes, government, inter-Jewish politics, religious life, and so much more. So the story here is really less about Rebilio Gutmacher himself, although he was also an interesting person, but it's more, at least the way I would like to examine it, is more about his Kvitlach collection, what it tells us about Polish Jewry in mid-19th century. Um, Marcin Wojcinski, in his, uh, in his lecture, he described the uh, types of requests that people wrote in these Kvitlach, and who wrote them, uh, what language they were written in, 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 in mostly Hebrew, because they were brought to professional Kvitlach writers, or to the Gaboim, the assistants of Rebilio Gutmacher, to write them in an elegant Hebrew. Uh, but some were written in Yiddish, and presumably they were uh, written by the petitioners themselves. It's interesting that, that in general, there, there was this idea, uh, back, in, back in the olden days, this was a profession, that you were a writer for people. Um, I, I don't know what they would call them, some sort of copywriter. They, they were... They were in, in the early days of the State of Israel, there were people who, who were called Kotvei Bakashot, or Prushnie in Polish, and they used the Polish word in Hebrew as well in the 1950s, because, because many people here were from Poland. Um, but they were, in the early days of, uh, in Israel, they were a common sight, uh, on, and sometimes outside of courthouses, um, and they were used for, in an immigrant society that the State of Israel was in the 1950s and 60s, um, most people did not know Hebrew. They spoke Polish, they spoke Yiddish, they spoke Russian, they spoke Arabic, uh, you know, um, uh, um, whatever, the, you know, all kinds of dialects of Arabic in the Middle Eastern, from the Middle Eastern lands. Also the Israeli Arabs uh, didn't speak Hebrew. And there were people who did translations for them for courts, for government offices, for filling out forms. Uh, that was a profession. You set up a table on a street corner in Tel Aviv, you hung out a sign that you do kotvei bakashot, and and you did a translation for your uh, for a person's uh, form that he needed to submit to the bituach lumi or whatever it was. And pre-war in Europe and around the world, not only in Europe, this was a common livelihood that people did um, in in societies that were a large percentage of the population were illiterate. 
and those people who were literate were able to write on behalf of others. So having said that, I mean, that's just a a, um, a background. So these kvitlach that were submitted to Rabbi Yehu Gutmacher, so were for the most part written by others, not by the petitioners themselves, either people who were hired for this purpose or by his own gabayim, uh, who uh, who would write it for the petitioner who was there in person. Uh, and they're written along an established formula. Some are in Yiddish, like I said. Uh, most, though, were either uh, written by these professionals or the tzaddik's assistants, and that's why it is an established formula. So the content of the kvittal is usually short, but there are some long ones. It says the names of the pers- the per- both the petitioner and his family, or whoever else he wants, that the tzaddik should pray on their behalf. Usually they're undated, some are dated, though there's the basic request, and these requests contain all kinds of fascinating, intimate details of their daily lives and challenges, and provides a rare window into everyday life uh, of the people at that time. And the pla- And also, it also contains the place of origin. Um, in other words, where the petitioner lives, which ends up being one of the most important pieces of information on these kvitlach. Wojcinski mapped, took the whole collection and gathered the the town names from all 7,000 or most of them of these kvitlach and then threw the data on, onto a map using you know digital humanities technology. And there he found where all the people of the kvitlach came from on a map. And, uh, and of course, you have uh, mostly from Eastern Europe and then mostly from a certain geographical radius near where Abelio Guttmacher lived, which, of course, would be an obvious conclusion. But then you have some interesting findings once, he, once you plot the data on a map like that. And what he discovered was that the, 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 if you put the uh, railroad tracks, the train routes, uh, on, a, on, on, on the same map, they're almost parallel. In other words, that the, the people who came to the tzaddik it went along a train route. Um, and that means that people who didn't live on the train route were less likely to bring kvitlach, either because it was harder to get to him, or, I mean, then you can just speculate the why. The, the, the fact is, is that it followed the train routes. The ones not on the train routes maybe didn't hear about him as much, or perhaps just the opposite. The ones on the train routes heard about him more from people who got on and off the train and told about them in the town of Orangen. So we now solved another piece of the puzzle of the spread in the 19th century in the Hasidic movement where we can posit that it spread along train routes, um, which, you know, to be honest, we don't really have a, we have a very vague idea of how the Hasidic movement spread in the late 18th century and early 19th century, before there were trains, and even after the advent of trains. This is just one factor in how it spread, so we don't really really know uh, how the Hasidic movement spread, which is a fascinating story in itself. But the railroad does seem to be a factor, and I believe that I even mentioned it on the Railroad and the Jews episode, which was uh, several months ago. In any event... Um, I mentioned that it was the spread of the Hasidic movement, but this obviously is going to lead to the obvious question when we speak about Aurelio Guttmacher, um, because we're not talking about a, uh, a Hasid or a Hasidic tzaddik or the Hasidic movement. So why would I draw any conclusions about it? So um, 
So perhaps um, we can learn about Jew- Polish Jewish society from studying the Kvitloch, and perhaps also about Rabbi Leo Gutmacher from studying his Kvitloch. But what in the world does that have to do with anything about the Hasidic movement, since he was not a Hasid or a rabbi? He was a German rabbi living in a city in, in Prussia, in, uh, near the Polish border, in what was previously Poland before the partition, but definitely not a, a Hasid uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So... Uh, first of all, Wojcicki told me that uh, that might be the very reason that we have the Kvitlech all together, that since Rabbi Leo Gutmacher was a yeki, so he, he, he was more orderly and organized with keeping his Kvitlech, or at least this batch of Kvitlech, and that's why we have it all together. All right, let's assume that that was a, a joke. Uh, but secondly, whether he was a Rebbe or a Hasidic Tzaddik, is, is somewhat, at some level is irrelevant, because he was not. Um, but the real question is, and this is where new research is breaking new ground, is insofar as the petitioners are concerned, did they see themselves as Hasidim, or as quasi-members of the Hasidic community, the Hasidic movement? Um, how did they see themselves? Because they're writing a kvittal to someone who they see as a tzaddik. So whether the tzaddik himself associates with the Hasidic movement is kind of irrelevant because the question is really the petitioners. Well, how do they see themselves? Do they see themselves as Hasidim? And it's very likely that they did, and sometimes we know for sure that they did. So this is, uh, you know, it definitely we could extrapolate from the places of origin, from the maps, and from and from the information we have in these Kvitlech, we can draw certain conclusions about the Hasidic movement as well, because uh, presumably many of the petitioners saw themselves as associated with that community. Um, the Glenn Diner uh, utilized the Kvitlech collection to glean some knowledge about Polish-Jewish life in the 19th century as well. And One of the examples is, is that today... In our days, it's very fashionable to discuss on the uh, editorials of all kinds of blogs and websites and magazines the relatively new challenge of alcoholism in the Orthodox community and its accompanying accompanying social ills in the contemporary Orthodox uh, society with kiddish clubs and other such gatherings. Yet in the Guttmacher Kvitlach collection, there appears a couple of Kvitlach from women who are complaining that their husbands are drunk all the time and attending these uh, parties and always coming back um, inebriated. And what should they do? They're seeking out the rabbi's blessing and advice. So that's a uh, you know a fascinating insight as to what's going on at that time in Poland as well. Um, so the more things change, the more things stay the same. I also saw recently Eliezer Brut, the legendary genius who knows everything. Um, he had an interview with um, I think Oldaf with Moshe Shwe from Oldaf, and it focused on Rebbeio Gutmacher and his scholarly works, all his many svarim that he wrote and all kinds of very important svarim on shas and halacha, halachic responsa, chuvis, um, which is, I guess, a very interesting topic as well, but there's less interest uh, to me uh, from a historical perspective uh, than, uh, you know, which, I'm, you know, his, he, he definitely was a, a um, prodigious literary output and wrote many important svarim, but that's uh, not what I want to focus on. The primary story uh, like what I said, is is about the Kvitlach and about the social life that we learn about in 19th century uh, Polish Jewry. And the reason for that is 
because I like to focus on social history, less so on rabbinic history, though it may not seem so because I focus a lot on rabbinic history in this podcast. But I think we have uh, a lot of rabbinic history and not enough social history. And the everyday life of ordinary people, the men and women, um, is important and and, uh, definitely would love to focus more on that. People need heroes, so more likely uh, to get sponsors about rabbis and other types of heroes and leaders. But at the end of the day, that's far from the whole story of our past. Uh, these kvitlach uh, discuss the everyday life, uh, material requests, human dramas and struggles. Very powerful depiction. Um, not surprisingly, um, the most common ones, uh, requests that he receives, are about Bane Chayim Zayne. Uh, health, children, financial security, which is what the Polish tzaddikim, Hasidic tzaddikim, are receiving in their kvitluch at the same time. So it's not surprising that Rabbi Leo Gutmacher receives those requests as, as well. Many of the kvitluch uh, discuss issues of pregnancy, childbirth, fertility, infant mortality, shaduchim, marriage, financial resources to be able to marry off one's children. A marital strife, divorce, relationships with non-Jews, uh, disputes with other Jews, petitioning the tzaddik even very often for Kabbalistic formulas or for heavenly intervention that a business competitor should get harmed or even die. And that business competitor might be Jewish or not Jewish. So they're asking the tzaddik to, to intervene in, in, in that regard as well. Um, we don't have, obviously, any of Rabbi Leo Gutmacher's responses, which would have been quite interesting as well. Um, They uh, provide information on economic conditions, geographical settlement, religious life, physical health and family problems of Polish juries. Jury uh, and in Western Europe too, there's some from other parts of Europe as well. Many of them describe medical problems, uh, mental illness, which we would think didn't, you know, wasn't so commonly spoken about in the 19th century, physical ailments, uh, some of them mentioned doctors who were consulted or treatments that were attempted. A few kvitlach referred to previous cures suggested by Rav Gutmacher. Many of them are, are kvitlach from Jews in small towns faced with debts or angry creditors, increased competition from non-Jewish businessmen. They describe their financial problems, legal issues, and they ask advice, not only for prayers, not only for blessings, but also for advice. There are some malamdim who are unhappy with their work being a malamid and a cheder, and they ask him, should they become a shaykhet, or should they go into another uh, another career? So there are career questions. Many Jews uh, fear the draft and are requesting that the tzaddik daven for them or, or bless them that they shouldn't be drafted. Uh, some of them discuss, are discussing. Remember, this is the mid eighteenth, nineteenth, excuse me, mid nineteenth century. So some kvitlach discuss a laxity of religious observance in their town, an appearance of modern rabbis who are changing uh, Jewish custom and traditions. So you start to see the loosening and you know beginning of secularism that come across in the kvitlach, and you and you see which towns it's happening in. So we get all kinds of incredible uh, data. There's also a kvitlach from one of the most famous tzaddikim in Poland, who sends a kvittel to, and appears in this collection, he's sending a kvittel to Rabbi Leo Gutmacher, Rabbi Yaakov David Kalish, the oldest son of Rabbi Yitzchak of Varka, and he's the first uh, Rebbe of Amshinov. 
And he, in his kvittel, he asks for heavenly assistance in his attempts to help the Jews of Poland, which, uh, with uh, you know, his interceding for them uh, with government authorities and for all the things that the Polish Jewry needs. So that fits right into what we know about the Varka Amshinov Rebbe's at that time, as Shtadlanim, as those who were very involved with the Jewish community and 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 their involvement with with assisting them. Uh, um, uh, in in meeting with in, in all, all sorts of things with the government, the Polish government, the Russian government, politics, their relationship with the Polish and Russian governments on behalf of the Jews of Poland. So that's a fascinating tidbit as well. But what's interesting is that such was the renown of Rabbi Leo Gutmacher that one of the prominent Hasidic leaders sent him a kvittel. Uh, it seems also that many of them were non-Hasidim as well. They sent him, which... Um, which one could speculate was due to his nature as not being a Hasidic tzaddik, or perhaps it's revealing of the general trend at the time that oftentimes even non-Hasidim sent kvitlach to tzaddikim, whether it was people tzaddikim like Rabbi Gutmach or perhaps even Hasidic tzaddikim. There are kvitlach submitted by women, agunas, widows, poor women, uh, talk about religious issues, marital issues, challenges with their husbands, with relationships, it's also surprising that some kvitlach come from non-religious Jews altogether, requesting of the tzaddik to intervene with God on their behalf, since they're not doing it themselves. Uh, similarly, though most are from Poland, some came from Western Europe, and even from the United States. There are kvitlach there from the United States. And remember that, that uh, maybe you don't remember because I didn't mention it yet, but Rabbi Leo Gutmacher passes away in 1874. So, this is all prior to the Great Immigration. So who's sending him kvitlach from the United States? Who lives there? Uh, it's a much smaller um, uh, uh, non-Eastern European Jewish community for the most part in, uh, in the United States at that time. And still there's some kvitlach that appear there. And the fact that his reputation even reaches the United States, that's no less surprising either. There's also the unspoken factor of the kvitlach, which is the pidyon, which is what they pay uh, which goes along like just like a Hasidic rebbe, yeah, one was expected to pay for the services of the tzaddik of the blessing, but the petitioners then expected results because they're paying for it. In other words, they see the relationship with the tzaddik, and this comes across in kvittel after kvittel. They see the relationship with the tzaddik as some sort of commercial one, and the kvittel was a mechanism of this transaction, along with the payment, of course. And some kvitlach even contain complaints. You promised me, and what's implied is, but not said explicitly, is I paid you, and what you said didn't happen. So there's this inherent expectation that the tzaddik has miracle powers. Presumably this was the prevalent expectation within the Polish Hasidic community at the time of their tzaddik. But at the same time, there's this commercial element to that expectation and relationship. And one must, one must assume that with tzaddikim who were associated with the Hasidic movement, there were many spiritual requests as well, not just material ones and mundane ones. And perhaps these, that, that, that type of spiritual relationship may have changed the dynamics of the relationship. But in this case, like I said, the predominance of material requests is presumed to have been a result of the fact that he was not a Hasidic rebbe with the court, but rather a German rabbi who had simply gained a reputation as a miracle worker and a mystic, and people went to him to get his blessing. Nevertheless, it seems that the expectation of the average kvittel writer is, I ask, I pay, and you, re- you deliver. Um, though by now these kvittels 
have been analyzed to a certain extent, there is much more to learn from a careful reading and analysis of this whole collection. So in summary, one can extract much information from this collection. Some of the points uh, are the, the, the spread of a tzaddik's reputation along the railroad lines, a, a rare window uh, into the social and economic life of Polish Jewry at this time, and perhaps the most important uh, point of this all is the is the inherent uh, belief in the tzaddik's power by the average petitioner, which is a fascinating way of understanding the dynamics of the relationship um, of the uh, tzaddik to the petitioner from the perspective of the petitioner. Usually, when we talk about uh, these types of roles of the tzaddik, we quote Anayim Elimelech, and we quote Tanya, and we quote things like that, uh, when in reality, we should also we should be asking the Hasidim themselves how they saw it, and we have very, very rare opportunity to ask the Hasidim themselves how did they see the relationship between the Hasid and the tzaddik, and here we do. Um, so, getting to Rebilio Gutmacher himself, um, a little bit, just understand who this person was. I spoke so much about the Kvitlach and the world that he lives in and the people writing to him. But who was he? So he was this very close student of Rabbi Kiva Eger when he was the rabbi in Poznan in what's now Western Poland. But after the partition of Poland in the late 18th century, this uh, falls in, under the jurisdiction of Prussia, of, of you know later becomes Germany. Um, so it was officially German. It had been part of the Polish kingdom prior to the partitions of the late 18th century. And when we talk about the partitions and partitioned Poland of the 19th century, we generally focus on the Tsarist Russian area of Poland and the Galician Austro-Hungarian uh, sections of Poland. But Rikiv Eger and later his student, Rebilio Gutmacher and many others, operated in the German area of Poland, the Prussian area of Poland. And it was understandably also near the Polish border as a result. Um, so he is born in, in 1796 and passes away in 1874, so he covers most of the gamut uh, of the uh, 19th century. Like I said, he was a close student of Rebbe Kiva Eger, and then he embarks on a long and successful rabbinic career himself, and he's most famous for his last rabbinic position in the city of Graz in, in, in German, in, the, in Yiddish, the Jews called it Greiditz. They even referred to him as the Greiditzer Tzadik. Uh, and today it's in Poland, it's, it's known as Grodzisk Wiele Kopolski. Um, and he serves there in the last 30 plus years of his life. He was a Kabbalist and a mystic, uh, um, um, not, not just a you know, rabbinic leader who paskin halacha. He, early on, he studied Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism, and he became known uh, and renowned for his knowledge and the use of Kabbalah in the form of amulets and other miracles, uh, which he got a reputation for. And his occupation with Kabbalah influenced his thought on redemption and messianism, and this directly led to his association with the ideas of his friend and fellow student of Rabbi Kiva Eger, Kalisher, whom I once dedicated an episode to, and his whole campaign to settle the land of Israel in order to hasten the redemption. Um, it has also contributed to his popularity and his reputation as a miracle worker, which is where the Kvitlach come in. So this, his becoming a Kabbalist and his becoming a mystic really creates his reputation in the two most famous aspects of his life and career, which is the Kvitlach and his association with the Tzvihirsh Kalisher and this uh, sort of proto-Zionism of the mid-19th century. Um, so he uh, he has this 
close relationship with Ritsuyash Kalasher, and therefore his end with his ideological stand on settling the land of Israel. So this places him squarely as one was known as the Mavasrit Sion, whose thoughts and actions preceded the more organized movement towards the end of the century, uh, you know, years after his passing. So his Kabbalistic thought had led him to the conclusion that the Jewish people need to settle the land of Israel to hasten the redemption, and they should and they should be active in that regard and not wait for it passively in the exile. So to this end, he supports Kalisher's efforts and he engaged in various public uh, fundraising efforts and public activities for the early Jewish settlement of what was then Ottoman Palestine. Um, to implement his ideas, he. He made appeals uh, to European Jewry to raise money. Um, he attended a conference in Torun, to- Torun in, in Poland in 1860, which laid the groundwork for a society to promote settlement in Eretz Yisrael. Later on, he became an active member of the Society for the Settlement of the Land of Israel, which was based in Frankfurt, and later he and Rutzirish Kalischer reestablished it and served as its directors in, in, on the other side of Germany. He was in contact with the Jewish leaders of Western Europe, such as Adolf Cremieux in, in France, uh, of the Alliance, and Sir Moses Montefiore in London, in an effort to secure financing for these projects. He collected funds for the early settlements. Um, he also organized a Kabbalist study group in Yerushalayim called Schneis Eliyahu. Uh, fascinating uh, story in itself. And, um, and, uh, he founded uh, societies to support Talmudic scholars in Yerushalayim. Um, and he had he had his agents in Yerushalayim who ran all of his his stuff going on there. He would raise money for it. He would send he send them to the old yeshiv in Yerushalayim. Um, and he uh, he he gave a lot of stature uh, to the movement of Ritzirish Kalisher because he was renowned, uh, like I explained earlier, as a respected leader. Um, and um, and therefore he was one of the ones who wrote uh, the Haskama, the, the preface or a statement of approval for Ritzirish Kalischer's uh, book on the topic, Jerishas Tzion, and he would li- write letters of recommendation for rabbis who undertook to raise money, and, uh, and, and his involvement extended to other areas as well. There's actually a kibbutz in the north of Israel named Sdei Eliyahu, uh, which is named for him. So... That is the story of uh, Rebbe Leo Guttmacher and his life and the influence that he had and, and I guess, uh, the primary story of, of how his uh, kvitlach give us a whole new uh, look on life of uh, Polish Jewry and beyond in the 19th century. So this is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehudi.yehudigeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.